Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today, marine biologist Shelby Thomas joins us from Tampa Bay, Florida. This is a fantastic episode. We talk all about our oceans and the importance of coral reefs. She shares what her company, Ocean Rescue Alliance, does to help rebuild reefs. I'm so excited for you to listen to this. I spend a lot of time at the Field Museum here in Chicago, natural history, and uh, as you're probably aware, and I was so giddy to talk to her. Being someone who's, who's on the ground, or in the water, I should say, studying, understanding, and helping to get our oceans healthier, uh, this is so exciting. You can follow her on Instagram at ShelbyThomas21. You can also follow this podcast on Instagram at RichConvos. Let's begin. All right. Welcome to Rich Conversations. This is another special episode. I'm really excited about this. I have a marine biologist with us, Shelby Thomas, joining us from Tampa, Florida. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So why don't you introduce yourself real quick for uh, our viewers and listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Shelby. I'm the founder and CEO of the Ocean Rescue Alliance. I'm a scientist. I'm finishing my PhD in marine biology and fisheries and aquatic sciences. I specialize in doing applied restoration work. I've worked with doing oyster, mangroves, seagrass, and as well as coral restoration. And through my organization, we expand on different applied restoration techniques throughout Florida, but also internationally, which we'll get into here in a bit. Um, and looking forward to sharing more with you. Awesome. So what, what is marine biology and then what sparked your interest in it? Yes. So marine biology as a whole, it's, it's always interesting because sometimes people think at the surface level, they're like, Oh, you either study sharks, dolphins, or sea turtles. And it's actually quite more expansive than that. Uh, It's really the study of, of marine animals and resources I do a lot of applied management and restoration work. So I'm looking at different management tools as well as applied restoration to scale up more effective restoration for our marine ecosystems that are at risk of collapsing. Um, And in terms of what got my interest, I grew up in Florida all my life and have always had a love and passion for the ocean and um, really was inspired from genuine curiosity. Um, The ocean is we've explored more into outer space than our own oceans. And I think the ocean is so intriguing in terms of so many resources that are also underutilized that have a lot of potential. And just in my short lifetime, I've seen our resources greatly diminish. Uh, the Florida coral reef tract, I've seen huge coral colonies that are hundreds of years old die in just three days. And so that really sparked my passion to kind of be a voice for the voiceless and figure out how can we restore these resources more effectively, as well as bringing awareness and creating more action within the community. Wow. Awesome. How does, so how does a a coral reef die in three days that's been around for hundreds of years? Yeah. So there's a lot of stress undergoing our different marine systems, specifically here in Florida, we've had uh, various outbreaks of different diseases like stony tissue loss disease, black band disease, which really affects those hard reef building corals. And so something like that, when we, you have that disease onset, you can actually see tissue degradation and die off very rapidly. So in that case, that's exactly what I saw, but other reefs are also under different stress from temperature change, as well as ocean acidification, where it's becoming more acidic, the water is. So it's a com- combination of different environmental factors as well as pollution. Wow. What do you enjoy studying about marine life most? I would say just the the immense expansion of things that you can do with it. Um, I think people are becoming a little bit more aware of how a lot of marine resources can be used in your daily life. In fact, the ocean is why we're able to live on Earth and provides more oxygen than our terrestrial plants. And so what really inspires me to continue to the work is there's so much that we can do with it. And we're really starting to merge into a space that we're calling the blue economy now, where we're looking at 
different innovative jobs that can come from the ocean that are also sustainable. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, seeing that grow and expand in different applications of utilizing marine resources. Awesome. Uh, I'm so excited to get into this. Uh, I go to the, the Field Museum a lot at, here in Chicago, and I see how connected like the natural world is to each other and then also us. Um, can you elaborate more on the connection between the oceans and life on land? Yeah, absolutely. So just as I mentioned, you know, the ocean is why we're able to live on earth. And if you think about just water in general, it's critical to life period. Our bodies are 75% water and so is the ocean. And it's really responsible even for all of our weather patterns. And it's oftentimes not as fundamental in people's daily lives as how much interconnectedness and how much we rely on the oceans. Even if you live in the middle of the U.S. and aren't by a direct water body, all water and streams lead back to the ocean as well. So it's, it's critical to have a healthy ocean for us to also have healthy, um, happy lives on land. What, what's the state of our oceans right now? So unfortunately, we have a lot of pressing issues on our marine ecosystems from pollution. I am sure you've probably been aware of microplastics is, is also a, a trending issue that's within marine environments, but there's also other, other types of pollution um, from high nutrient fluxes that can change a lot of different nutrient loads in marine ecosystems, like from fertilizers or different really outflows from land. So we're needing to look at different responses to that to be more responsible from a company perspective. Uh, but there's also rising temperatures and it really depends on what ecosystem you're talking about in terms of what stressors it's undergoing. But mm. even things within oceanography, we're seeing patterns change from even currents and things like that that typically don't happen on the time frame that they are. So it's almost like uh, around the world, different ecosystems have different stressors at this point, right? Yes. And I'd say they'd all really collectively rely around temperature change, pollution, um, different disease that can be onset depending on what, what environmental factors really can cause them. Um, for example, in Florida, some of the disease outbreaks have even been potentially tied to dredging events. Um, for example, we do a lot of beach renourishment in Florida, but also all the way up the states to New York and New Jersey and internationally where they dredge sand offshore to maintain the beaches. And that's really a, a Band-Aid. And oftentimes they're suspending sediments that have been settled for hundreds and thousands of years. And they're disturbing bacteria that can have other really different effects on the ecosystem that were unintended. What, what is dredging? Sorry, uh, you're, you cut up a oh, little bit. What, what, so what exactly is dredging? Yeah, so dredging is where they'll essentially take uh, sediment and they'll dig it up with a machine and move it for different purposes. Some people will dredge canals, so shipping canals, so you can actually fit larger ships and they'll destroy that marine habitat. Um, but oftentimes, especially for coastal restoration, um, it, it's very heavy in Florida where they'll dredge sand offshore just to dump it on shore to maintain the beach. Um, and that's actually, which I can talk a little bit later with my company. We, we build artificial structure to reduce wave energy that like what natural reef systems do can really help protect the coastline in addition to create creating fish habitat. So we're hoping to combat um, doing beach renourishment and hopefully mitigating the need to do it at all eventually, but that's predominantly done all over the world. And it's really not the most effective, sustainable solution. Wow. Can you elaborate on microplastics in the ocean? Yeah. So um, I think they, they're now saying there might be more microplastic than there are stars right in the sky. And it's, oh, it's, um, it's getting uh, up there. It's a, it's a real problem. It's fantastically unfortunate. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not something to be proud of. Um, but I mean, yeah, the, the whole plastic waste and um, in terms of recycling issues been, you know, just accumulating over time. I think as a whole population, we're getting a little bit more aware of it, you know, creating more alternatives that are biodegradable now, but there's still uh, this issue that we have uh, in terms of how do we clean it up? 
microplastics have been found even in corals. They've been found in fish and food that we eat. So we really need to be aware of what we're putting out there and how we can have tools to actually clean up some of the mess that we've created. Yeah, I first I first heard about microplastics like two years ago. And so so these are what like plastic molecules that can end up in the air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink. Um, you so you mentioned that we're getting better at understanding plastic waste, but there's still already all this plastic waste in our oceans, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're becoming better at creating alternative solutions, like things that'll biodegrade or even more effectively recycling. So typically there's different grades of plastic, um, just like everything with decomposing materials, you know, things like styrofoam is really bad for the environment because it takes hundreds, hundreds of years to really break down um, compared, you know, you have woods, plastics, plastics still take a long time to break down. And even when they do break down, they create these microplastics. So these are just really small micro bits of plastic that still take very long times to degrade. Um, and there's, there's other things that, you know, scientists have been working on, which are really interesting, not, not my specialty, but even from bacteria that can actually help digest and break down plastic further. Uh, so there's a lot of innovation coming within the space on how to deal with the plastic problem that we do have. And I think as a whole, we need to have more eco-conscious consumers and be more demanding as a consumer as well for these larger companies that do use single use plastics is one of the major problems because it, it does have one, one use and then it goes like your plastic forks and things like that. Making sure that you're holding some kind of accountability for people that distribute them to look into alternative solutions because now we have things like plant extracts that are just as strong, but can actually mm. biodegrade um, in a very quick time period. So there, there's two problems and it seems like from what you mentioned, we're working on addressing specifically this one problem of single use plastics. What, what about addressing the plastics that are already in the ocean? So that's a really hard, yeah. hard problem to fix in terms of cleanup, right? Um, how, how do we clean up microplastics? One thing, there's the Pacific garbage patch, which if you haven't heard of it, it's um, I, I forget which state it's like, it might be Texas might even be bigger than that, but it, it actually fills a whole section of the ocean of just trash that's accumulated and collected from all the currents. And right now there's a lot of companies, including four ocean, as well as a few other ones that have been trying to clean up and address what's already out there in the ocean. So it doesn't break down further in terms of microplastics and cleansing the ocean of that. I don't think there's any at wide solutions for that right now, but I'm sure there's a lot of um, push to figure that out as well. Um, I, <laughs> these, these aren't questions I have on here, but I just have like questions <laughs> in general it, to pick yeah. your brain. Um, <laughs> fine. Your, you have mentioned that we've explored space more than we have the oceans. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Why is that? And do you see us in the near future exploring the oceans more? Yeah. Um, so the answer for why, you know, I think sometimes things right in front of our face, we think are like in our immediate reach and we just want to, you know, as a human population, we're curious about a lot, right? So because earth is our home and we still have access to the ocean, I think the whole outer space and, is there any other planets like ours and things like yeah. that have, has always been in humans, you know, curiosity. So I think that's taken a lot of precedence. Of course, it's a lot of money, um, but our oceans are very underlooked at. And I do think that this space is becoming a lot more popular now in terms of there's a huge uh, push to explore the ocean, um, even the deeper sea um, components. And even from a medical perspective, actually, uh, when I was an under, undergrad, I used to do biomedical research and the ocean itself can hold cures for various illnesses and in fact have been, has been attributed to a lot of our medical advancements. For example, um, horseshoe crab blood was part of the very first sterilization technique for IVs, for any kind of intravenous solutions. It actually helps prove that they're sterile. 
Um, in fact, it's a liter of blood of horseshoe crab blood is $14,000. So it's, it's pretty, pretty insane. A lot of um, the biomedical research I looked at was using secondary metabolites, which are essentially defense chemicals from corals and sponges that they emit when um, they're under attack in the ocean. And those actually have a lot more potency than what we typically use for things like uh, breast cancer, we typically use Taxol, which is a derivative of a yew tree. We use a lot in medicine, a lot of different rainforests and terrestrial plants, but the ocean has a variety of different organisms like the cone snail actually has a hundred times the potency of Taxol. So the amount of resources that we could use in the ocean is immense. We really are just tapping into from a medical perspective different uses of chemicals that we can find in the ocean and different organisms. And that's one of the also sad things is, you know, we're risking so, so much of our marine environments. We don't even know what's there that could also help save our futures. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely, I, I think, becoming more of an exploratory topic um, from a lot of different perspectives, not only medicine, but conservation, exploration, and I, I definitely foresee more of it happening in the future. Interesting. Uh, so deep sea, how much, how much do we know about the deep sea and how much, how many resources do you think are available within the deep sea that we haven't discovered yet? Oh, I think there's plenty we haven't discovered. I, I don't know the percentage in terms of I'm not a deep sea uh, biologist, but I do know that um, we've always had, for example, deep sea thermal vents um, have, have been of interest from a medical perspective where there's actually living organisms at the bottom of the seafloor that have no light and they can actually live off of different chemicals as well. So I think there's so much that we can explore and really utilize, and that's just going to continue to advance. Of course, um, it may not be as quite, quite as costly as space exploration, but getting to those depths and also safety wise, it does take a lot of precaution and regulations. So there definitely needs to be more funding attributed to exploring the ocean further, especially at depth. So is there, are there like uh, a few people in the world for like ocean exploration as there is in space of like SpaceX and Bezos and Elon Musk, like all wanting to explore space. Is there anybody in the, on the ocean side, like big names that are responsible for, for pushing these ideas forward? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one person that ha has really sparked a lot of interest in terms of people and bringing awareness to the ocean environment, um, Jacques Cousteau, which I'm sure you might've heard oh, yeah. of him before. He was known as an ocean explorer, but even um, from a female name, uh, Sylvia Earle is one of the most world-renowned female oceanographers and explorers. And she was one of the first women to go very deep into the ocean. I think she went almost 2000 feet, which is uh, an incredible depth. And she did that in a submarine, of course. Um, so yeah, we, there's plenty of ocean uh, scientists, but you know, I, I feel like it's not as, as widely known as some of our space explorers, but we should definitely change that, that narrative. Are there like, uh, so we have these scientists, are there like big funders of ocean exploration? I would say that there are, um, maybe not as forefront as space and, um, you know, some of our other scientific di disciplines, but there definitely are. I, I can't really pinpoint a name like you know you'd say like elon musk with spacex but we we need some more more funders to to pop out yeah up out there and um you know take on the ocean and i i think um in terms of which you know we'll maybe get into this a little bit later with my company um clean energy has become a, a more prolific topic and need of course for us around the world we have wind and solar which has been taking off we definitely use that here in florida but our oceans is really an underutilized resource. Again, it, it's um, immense for clean energy. And so we're now seeing the clean energy world go a little bit more towards looking at ocean energy and, and really utilizing that wave energy and passive currents that are consistent all the time, unlike solar, which can be patchy and not used everywhere. Um, so I, I hope that from an energy perspective, we're going to get some more funders that will look into the ocean from an energy side as well. Interesting. 
So where else in the world has marine biology taken you? It's taken me a, a lot, a lot of places. Um, you know, I, I, with my company, we've been expanding to do some international artificial reefs that have um, different purposes for each project, but some of those being throughout the Caribbean, we, we've also looked to explore projects in um, Australia, as well as some smaller islands um, like the Maldives and, and things like that. Uh, we have a project that I'm really excited about. We're doing in Mexico. That's a Mayan themed artificial reef. And so we merge art uh, with science cool. as a way to really connect the public back to the ocean. Um, Cause one of the problems is the ocean's out of sight, out of mind. And yeah. until you get people to care about it, it's, it's really hard. You have to make, make it personal for people to care about it. And so we try to use art as a way to do that as a pathway. So we'll conduct um, different restoration sites that will implement art to create ecotourism. And that also can help incentivize making a destination that helps the local economy, helps create jobs. And um, I'm really excited about the Mexico reef because it's our first culturally relevant reef. We're working with a Mayan native to make a serpent deity called the Kluklan. And so that reef will be shaped as a snake and have all those Mayan features. And it'll be the first time we're doing um, a reef in Mexico. So it'll bring awareness to Mayan culture, but more importantly, create fish habitat. We're going to be outplanting coral with the community there. And it'll serve as a site that can, will be the community's resource for generations to come, not only educationally, but helping create jobs and further restore coral reefs for, for years. So how big is this serpent? So right now we're looking at doing a 200 meter reef. So it'll be done in phases. Uh, we'd probably do about uh, 50 modules at a time, which are typically about six by six feet. And we'll link them all together to form a snake, but they'll all have these, these features like a natural reef would to create fish habitat, but still have some artistic components as well. Wow. Uh, I want to ask about that a little bit later. I'm curious right now about, um, you've mentioned these places, Australia, the, the Maldives, Mexico, Florida, how, how are they like similar and how are they, how do they differ from each other as far as like ecosystems and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So one thing, um, with, with my company, we're really trying to take an applied adaptive approach where we're meeting area specific needs needs. So we'll go in and do site assessments. Of course, every area is different and has different stressors and pressures that that ecosystem needs. So for example, even within Florida, between the East and West Coast, we have different focuses where, especially in South Florida, we've been focusing more on coral restoration. And in some areas, we'll need a little bit more wave reduction where we're protecting the coastline, where on the East Coast, we might shift and do oyster or mangrove restoration to address nutrient and water quality issues. So we'll change our really solution depending on the area's needs. Um, and then even really looking into that site perspective of what kind of biological focus we're doing and what kind of restoration techniques we'll do. Uh, for example, with corals, we have a few different scalable solutions where we can uh, use our coral lock, which is a threaded frag plug. I actually, I have, I have an example right here. So it might be easier to show, um, show you than, than talk about it. So um, the coral lock is a threaded frag plug. And typically for coral restoration, people will individually glue corals down to reef structure. We're able to simply screw them in. So now we're able to outplant hundreds of corals at a time versus traditional methods. And we'll put them on different bases for natural reefs where we can make things like this and screw them together and they'll fuse to create a larger, more reproductive coral. Uh, we actually outplanted 10,000 corals this way this past summer um, throughout the Keys up to Fort Lauderdale. Um, but that's one example of We'll take different techniques, depending on what's needed in the area, what kind of corals we're needing to put out. But we also work with different organizations to increase biodiversity. So we sexually reproduce corals as well, uh, working with the Florida Aquarium and Seacor. That helps really increase the genetic diversity instead of taking different fragments from one uh, colony. So especially in the Caribbean and uh, different areas, we'll look at what the immediate need is and uh, what what best way to address it from a restoration perspective so so what you just showed us that so you create this structure and then you're able to like uh screw like is it it you screw it in and then 
it like builds itself? So, so what I like to call um, what we do with artificial structure is combining gray and green infrastructure. So that means taking kind of an artificial human-made solution and combining it with a biological restoration solution. So we will outplant corals on our artificial structures that those corals then will continue to grow and create a thriving reef on that, that system. Um, and so I guess I'll give a little, little intro to uh, the Ocean Rescue Alliance is a marine conservation and restoration nonprofit. And we primarily utilize artificial structure for different biological purposes. Um, in Florida specifically, we focus more on coral restoration, but we also do oysters and mangroves as well. And um, just as, as we were mentioning with this, this base, we do natural reef restoration in addition to outplanting on artificial reefs. And this really gives us a, a scalable solution to create reefs in new areas. Um, one of the problems is typically everything we do as humans is reactive and we need to be proactive and preventative. We can't wait for our reefs to die to wonder where our fish are going to go. Um, our, not only our food, but a lot of marine ecosystems and fisheries rely on natural reef systems or spend some point of their life on a natural reef. And so if we are losing this critical habitat, we're also risking thousands of species of fish collapsing. And so one of our, our goals um, with our, our organization is to create artificial structure to more closely mimic natural reefs. And that means we're creating microhabitat to support different stages and life stages of fish and different species. Uh, typically, have you heard of artificial reefs before? Sort of, sort of, and then I don't know. So normally, it sounds kind of straightforward. Sort of think though. of ships, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but normally, it's typically trash of land, um, construction pilings, debris, ships, um, and it's been like that for for generations. Where we'll typically dump land waste and just put it in the ocean and call it fish habitat. Yeah. Um, so we're really one of the first companies actually making reefs to mimic natural reef geology. And that's really for the benefit of creating fisheries habitat. And then adding on a biological restoration enables us to create reefs in new areas that might not be as impacted from disease, might be in more favorable growing conditions, at least allows us to make more nurseries. And it, at the very fundamental, creating habitat for fish. Um, so our goal and our, our saying is also, you know, saving our oceans one reef at a time. We can never get out a, a enough structure. And just like natural reefs do, with creating a barrier to protect the coastline, we can move that all the way up through New York and all over the world. Uh, our desire is especially to focus on island and Caribbean countries that are really getting decimated from storms and are in need of a lot of this structure to protect their coastline and their communities as well. So you can, so there's a, well, there's many, many jobs that uh, a reef will, will do um, in nature but it sounds like the two biggest ones is like fisheries and creating fish communities and then like wave protection. From a coral reefs. You yeah. Saying? There you cut out. yeah, um, absolutely. So coral reefs are like the rainforests of the ocean. They're one of the most biodiverse ecosystems in the world and they provide a habitat for a variety of fish species that we rely on for food, but also um, the ocean's um, food system as well. So they, also have all these other factors like being coastal protection, protecting against coastal erosion. They're that first barrier of protection that we have from wave energy, uh, especially here in Florida. Wow. What's, what's the biggest um, stressor of the reefs in the Maldives? So the Maldives, um, I, I would say they're, they're not on, under as much pressure as some of the really heavily, um, tourist destinations like Florida and Australia. Um, although I'd say the Maldives uh, still have, you know, pollution elements, ocean acidification and temperature threats as well. Um, probably most likely temperature and ocean acidification would be the most uh, pressing stressors on the, those reef systems. But um, here in Florida, we, you know, have a variety, but I'd say as a blanket, there's, you know, typically all of those factors come into play and, we would do different assessments to see what is impacting reef integrity. I feel like I, I hear most about Australian coral reefs is that they have like the biggest coral reef 
in the world, in the right? World. What's what's the status on on that reef? How's it doing health wise? So the, it is recovering, um, although a lot of the coral reef has has unfortunately died. That uh, we do have a recovery period. A lot of corals will bleach, which is essentially where the microalgae, which is a symbiotic relationship with the coral. Um, will leave and the corals will turn white instead of having their, their different natural and colorful pigments. And from that, they actually have a period where the algae can come back. But the reason for the algae leaving can be a variety of different things. If they're stressed from temperature, if the ocean may be too acidic, there may be pollution, there may be a disease. So each, each factor is a little different and you can actually see different traces of what, what might be impacting a coral, um, even genetically. So there's a lot, there's a lot of focus, especially in Australia, um, a lot of groups, organizations and universities that are immediately addressing these issues. Um, I think there's a lot of hope, um, but again, there's, you know, there's still a, a big need, uh, not only for awareness in the public, but to create more action and it still needs more help. What was the, the biggest uh, cause of the Australian coral reef um, suffering? I would say definitely temperature and ocean acidification. They don't have as, as prolific as a disease outbreak as we do in Florida. And um, Florida is our third largest um, reef system in the world, which not, not everybody wow. knows. So we have a, a natural gem. There's actually a push to create... Uh, Florida's coral reef as a as a national park, just like we would have Yosemite and things like that as a a nature's wonder. Um, We have that right in our backyard. And a lot of people don't even even know, um, you know, how big that reef system is. So what when you say Florida, well, what's the second biggest coral reef in the world? The Mesoamerican. So that's that's throughout like the Caribbean and Mexico. Okay, And then Florida's third. So where exactly in Florida, the Gulf or like on the Atlantic? It's uh, South Florida from the Atlantic side. So all the way from the Keys wrapping up through West Palm Beach area. That's the northern part of the reef track. So it goes on uh, very extensively and they they go through different patch reefs. But a lot of people also only assume coral reefs are in those shallower, shallower depths. But we also have, you know, deeper sea uh, coral reefs as well as um, patch reefs. We have coral reefs on the west coast of Florida as well throughout the Gulf, but they're not um, like the traditional really stony coral uh, building corals from South Florida. Wow. Uh, I'm afraid to ask this question now, but what's your favorite animal? Favorite animal. <laughs> Imagine everybody thinks marine biologists are dolphins and sharks. That is hard. Um, it is hard. I'd say an octopus, um, although I have a lot of favorite marine organisms i'd probably say an octopus why why is that uh they're they're one of the most intelligent um marine organisms and i i think they also have a little fun fact i guess about them they have three hearts and um biomedically they also can morph and and change their their pigment Uh, i'm sure you you know maybe seen they can camouflage and match match different um, surfaces and even textures which is really really insane. So just the amount of advanced like bioinformatics work and, and things that come from them are really intriguing. I think um, they're almost like alien, like <laughs> in yeah. the ocean. How do they, how are they able to like sense their environment and then change into that environment? Like how, how does that happen? So they, I, I'm not a, uh, octopus, um, I guess scientists, but they have different, uh, essentially sensory, um, organs that can be like photo optic that they can actually match colors and pigments. Really? Um, but they're able to change so quickly, which I think is just, you know, it's insane. <laughs> um, and the fact that they're just really advanced and uh, very intelligent where they can learn um, even like patterns and, and tricks and different things and um, underwater. And, you know, I've, I've never had one. I have an aquarium actually in my home, but, um, you know, I've heard that you can't really even have them in tanks. You have to give them mental stimulus. Otherwise they, they get depressed. So, um, they're Uh, really, really awesome creatures. So who's more intelligent dolphins or octopus? (laughs) Hmm. You know, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a measure of depending on what kind of test have been putting, putting them through. So, Dolphins are mammals, though. So 
that is a little bit of a different comparison um, in terms of just like hierarchy of organ organismal levels. But um, dolphins are also very intelligent, which I know, you know, people have studied dolphins very extensively, uh, especially because they create different behavioral and um, connections with their, their pods. Um, so they're like more family oriented and um, we'll, they'll work together. I don't know if I, I, I recall ever um, reading that octopus work together, but they're, they're also really interesting. They have um, a really high intensive um, maternal contribution. So un unfortunately, another, another fun fact, um, octopus only reproduce once and oh, then really? they, they die. Yeah. So they have a, a very high energetic energetic input to reproducing and they unfortunately pass after doing so, but they can live for, for years. So, so they, how, how quickly do they die after giving birth? Um, within days typically. Um, wow. yeah. And ocean eco <laughs> ocean marine and, and marine organisms can be a little brutal. Um, yeah, typically actually, actually the young will feed on their mother, which is, pretty barbaric oh. <laughs> <laughs> not to now we're, we're down a whole rabbit hole of uh <laughs> wow. marina fish and things can be pretty pretty brutal i mean even um people don't know i like to sometimes the fun fact for clownfish actually all start out as male and they compete to be the female and typically uh, what should have happened in finding nemo is marlin the the male should have turned into the mom after that happened so it's really it's it's an interesting world in the ocean um i mean even from owning having your own tanks at home to pair clownfish they're very selective in their mate and um the typically if you have two smaller ones one they'll fight to become the female and then the the female becomes the larger dominant fish wow wow <laughs> That is interesting. So in case you ever want to start an aquarium, <laughs> make sure you're looking into what fish species you put in there because they'll start killing each other if you don't know <laughs> what <Wow>. you're doing. <laughs> what kind of fish do you have in your aquarium? Uh, I have a, a reef tank and a fish only tank. So I have a lot of different tropical fish I can show you if you'd like. <laughs> but, um, you know, the typical like I have a, a dory is what I call it for the, for people who don't know what it is, but hippo tang, lots of tangs and colorful fish from the Indo-Pacific as well as like Hawaii and things like that. Yeah. Could we, could we see it real quick? Yeah. You want to see it? <laughs> One second. Let's see. So here you are. Here's one of them. Oh, um, wow. Cool. This is the reef tank. So I have a lot of different corals. The, these aren't restoration corals. These are um, hobby corals, but people kind of use similar techniques. You can break off a fragment of it and grow it. And um, oftentimes when you break corals into small pieces, they grow more rapidly. Um, kind of like when we get a cut on our arm, Wow! Uh, your skin regenerates quick. How, how many fish do you have in that tank? So this tank, I probably have at least 30. Um, wow. lots of different tangs. So these are all tangs right here. Um, that's a Sohal yellow tang, powder blue tang, um, a hippo tang, which is the one that is Dory in Finding Nemo. Oh yeah. If you're yeah. listening, if you're listening to this, it's very bright blue. It's, uh, it's yeah. very nice. Colorful, very vibrant. How um, big is that tank? This tank is a uh, 220 gallons. Um, wow. so it's a, a decent size. I have a, a larger fish only tank, um, oh, yeah. which I have a Pacific horn shark. You can see her right there. Wow. Now and it's, then, it's purple. The every, everything is purple. Is that intentional or? Um, so that's just a blue light. Um, it okay. goes, I have a different light phase on both the tanks. Um, this one's more, it has bluer lights just to not grow as much algae um, oh. because this isn't a reef tank, but I have some anemones in here. So you're, it's just harder to see with a, a camera unless I put a red filter lens and then you can see it better. But yeah. <laughs> wow. Thanks for showing us that. Yeah, no problem. So having spent a lot of time in or by water, how has that influenced your outlook on life? 
how has it influenced my outlook on life? I'd say um, very optimistic. Um, I think, I don't know if you've heard of the book called The Blue Mind um, by Nicholas Wallace. Um, he talks about how having some type of water body in your life brings a lot more peace and tranquility. And I definitely agree with that. I lived away from the ocean um, in undergrad in Gainesville at the University of Florida for a little bit. And I, I can say when I'm by the water, it definitely, um, you know, makes me feel more happier and peace at peace. Um, any, any water or it could be a river or a lake or, um, yeah, his, his, his book talks about any water, um, and just having like a peace from being by water bodies, um, and just even having a sense of swimming for, for people who've never swam before, um, going in a water body can have a different experience, um, for each person. I personally love diving, uh, very meditative. If you haven't dove before, uh, super peaceful. And, um, I'm always very inspired when I, I dive in the ocean and just admiring all the, the subtle intricacies on a reef, uh, is really, um, enjoyable. I'm not much of a, I don't enjoy freshwater diving as much, but I've done a lot of it and Florida, what, we have that? a lot of spring there's just not as much life. Not as um, interesting. It's not as interesting to me, but I mean, it's still unique in Florida. We have a lot of spring systems and underwater caves. So I've done cave diving, but a lot of it's just dark and cold and no fish. <laughs> so, wow. um, but in Mexico, they actually have a lot of cenotes that have a lot of ties back culturally to, to Mayans that, you know, they believe that was part of, um, they do like sacrifices and rituals, and a lot of them are very diverse. They have um, a bunch of different geologic kind of history. So it's, I think it's always interesting to dive. I always encourage people to try it at least once in their life. I, I can probably uh, confirm that. I live like a five minute walk through the park to Lake Michigan. And I can just stand by the water and it's just like endless and it's, just watch the waves people are there just like just sitting just being there it yeah. has i don't know there's something in it for sure uh yeah, definitely my other question for you i forget okay so i have like two i would say like two fears heights and like when i'm in the water you know like the breath and stuff so i'm kind of afraid to say scuba dive or, or underwater explore what what is that like doing it so that i can overcome that fear yeah well i'm, I'm glad you at least didn't say sharks <laughs> because... no i i i watch enough uh nature stuff to under to understand that like sharks aren't what people think what like Absolutely. yeah culture yeah. thinks of sharks Right. Yeah. They're, they're not what their, their stigma is. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I definitely recommend you to try it. I think that's always, it's a, it's a mental block for people as it sometimes can feel weird breathing underwater. I'm and afraid the enough, tank's going to run out while I'm down there. You can check it though. <laughs> so it's okay. just being right. Um, it, you drive your car, you know, when it's going to be empty, you look at your gauges, it's just being, you know, on top of checking your, your things and being a trained diver. Uh, it's very safe, especially for open water um, diving. You, it's typically 60 feet, um, which is normally you can take safe ascents um, even from that depth if you're trained. So you should never be really running low, um, but just checking it, just like you would check your gas tank when you're driving, um, you know, and always diving with a buddy is, is the number one rule for scuba yeah. diving as well. So you're checking each other. Um, but yeah, I'd never, I've never ran out of air or, or had any issues. I used to teach it at UF and uh, really enjoyed working with people who typically had a, a phobia of, of diving, but uh, we had at least the luxury for teaching it at the university. They had the whole semester to dive. Okay. So they get a lot of experience doing pool diving in springs that they're very comfortable by the end of it, where some people who do like a weekend course might not be as confident and comfortable. So okay. maybe if you feel like you have a little bit of a fear of it, um, try to do like a little longer class and just get more practice, even if it's in a pool. Um, and then, 
and come come try diving in the ocean. So how deep have you gone? So I've gone to about 150 feet. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Where so was I, that? Where's the like? Uh... Um, so I've done some uh, deeper wrecks off of Florida. Um, and I, I want to eventually get my tech diving. So when you start getting into depths beyond 60 feet, they have different air mixes that allows you to stay deeper for longer. Um, basically just pressure increases as you dive down so you have to be aware of different gases that accumulate in your blood. Um, but all oh, of that's wow. a, a safety thing. I don't want to steer you away from diving. Yeah. But, um, so when you do dive at depth, you have to be trained and on the right um, air for that. But it's definitely really, really fun. I, one thing I haven't done that I'd like to do is eventually try going in a submarine or, um, things like that would be, would be interesting and fun. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned it before, uh, you've mentioned it throughout the episode, but, um, uh, can you share why you created the ocean rescue Alliance? Yeah. So as, as a scientist, um, I've, been in the space for a long time, finishing my PhD and have worked on a lot of different grant restoration projects. And typically, um, sometimes those can be funded from, you know, different companies that might've made an impact. For example, my master's actually was doing oyster restoration that came off of funding from the BP oil spill. And I've found to be a little bit um, irritated with internal politics that can come with different constraints within grant funding. Um, also, we have a very limited amount of grant resources for restoration um, in the states as a whole. And then even working from a restoration space with corals, you know, we'd think, especially with being the thir third lar largest reef in the world, that we'd have hundreds of groups in Florida working on saving our coral reefs and doing conservation work. We have about seven. And mm. um, those often, um, up until recently, they can be really competitive for the funding because it's so limited. So they, they yeah. sometimes become, there's a lot of politics that can get involved. And so that is really what inspired me to start my own company is to find innovative ways to create business models that would sustain the work uh, without relying on grant structures. Although we still can apply for grants and that's a little bit more of my background. So we have gotten grants before but we're trying to switch to utilizing art or utilizing doing coastal restoration and mitigation as ways to fund doing work at a higher scale where we can also create a corporate responsibility, like perhaps doing a, a guitar shaped reef for the hard rock is one of our ideas that can create, you know, a dive site for that hotel that tailors to the brand, but actually gets a restoration site completed and a, in a unique way. So creating that responsibility for coastal hotels and developers is really needed because in Florida, typically all the taxpayers contribute to some of the beach renourishment work, not the direct hotels. So it's a way to really offset and, and do these larger projects more quickly. And so that's really what, what pushed me to start my own company is just being able to non-biasedly work with other organizations, being able to scale up restoration more rapidly and finding solutions to do it more effectively. Yeah, that's so like art installations in the ocean that serve uh, a purpose. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So um, one of our biggest eco art projects in Florida is called the A Thousand Mermaids Artificial Reef. That's in West Palm, where we sculpt people as mermaids to bring awareness to marine conservation. Right now we're at about 35 mermaids, but we're our goal is to get to a thousand over time. Uh, and that's just one example. Um, the Mexico mine theme brief is another one where one of the things we want to do is inspire that community to do an art narrative that's really relevant to that area. You can connect community and culture through art and even open it up to the community to decide on what kind of site they want. Um, I'd ideally like to see Florida transform into where we have a different dive site for every county and city that can really connect the community together, but also help restore our ecosystems. That's fantastic. Uh, so I saw you were at Miami Crypto Week. Mm -hmm. Can you can you share what that experience was like, and uh, what what technologies excite you most for the future of marine biology? 
Yeah. So the crypto space is, is definitely really like growing in a hot topic right now. Right. And, um, one, the experience was awesome because I'm not as much of a tech person, but do see the ability to combine tech and using technology to advance science and also communicate to the public more effectively. So one thing we're doing within crypto is a lot of different NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which are just essentially different digital art that can connect to restoration projects. So we've been doing NFTs with different things like with Miami Crypto Week, as well as BitBuzzle and ArtBuzzle and creating these digital experiences that one can connect the people back to the ocean. We're doing virtual and augmented reality where you can dive from your computer or if you have an Oculus, have an immersive experience. Wow. We know not everyone can dive and it often can be expensive. So we're trying to make it more accessible to learn about the ocean, experience what restoration is, and then really try to connect people back that way. Wow. So you could theoretically design a reef and you could, you could have people explore it virtually through augmented or virtual reality and it would it, it will help them better understand the ocean and and uh the reef system and how interconnected we are with our oceans so that technology is like that's like a potential thing that could happen right yeah yeah absolutely wow. and that's exactly what we're wanting to work on and even using it as a training tool where we can um, you know, connect with schools and teach different things like fluid dynamics and things like that, even from a, a physics perspective, but using the ocean as a way to experience it. Um, and that's one thing that excites me the most about technology now is we're advancing so rapidly in the last, you know, 10, 15 years and, and moving forward where we can do a lot more things that can benefit our marine environments. And then in terms of NFTs, it's a way to really creatively fund doing restoration and then tying in that trackability. So we'll do a unique art piece that ties into doing coral restoration in Key Largo, Florida. And then we'll make a different one for West Palm Beach or for every project that we do. And it's a way to help fund doing that work and enabling people to have part of that experience as well. Wow, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing all of this. Yeah. Um, Switching gears, transitioning now to uh, the tail end of our conversation. I like to ask these particular questions to people um, just to see how they, they're similar and different. Uh, what are three musical artists in your heavy rotation right now? Heavy rotation right now? Hmm, I, I'd say I've been uh, really heavily into Rufus to Soul lately, Rufus. as well as uh, Khalid and Elderbrook. What kind of music is Elderbrook? That's a hard, uh, I don't know how to describe that. I guess it'd be like progressive house music in a sense, but it, it still has words. So it, it's kind of a combination. I also like uh, Nora, Nora and Pure. Um, and she combines a lot of like instrumental sounds as well as with nature, but it's also kind of house and EDM-esque. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Very cool. Um, what's something you're curious about recently? Something that I'm curious about recently. I mean, I was talking on the energy, energy space. Um, I'm curious on, aside from, you know, moving on from ocean sides of things. Um, one thing that also really intrigues me is how can we also help connect people more in the public and doing more sustainable things. So I think I'm interested in really taking interdisciplinary approaches to solve our immediate problems that things like, you know, food scarcity, um, housing issues. You know, I think honestly, with all the issues we have in the world right now, we have a lot of the tools to address these problems immediately. I think it just takes more effective collaboration and, cross interdisciplinary approaches where you're combining, you know, engineers with scientists, with the community and meeting those goals. So I'd say I'm more curious on uh, sustainability as a whole um, and implementing that into, you know, more structured approaches for things that we do. 
Awesome. Now, when you say interdisciplinary, that means like people of all different kind of uh, skill sets and disciplines, yes. industries type of things. Yeah, definitely. Basically from different disciplines. Um, I think, you know, we're the most creative that way. Um, yeah. Sometimes I feel like, especially in the science space, people tend to stay within their collectives and we can have someone who knows nothing about science, you know, suggest a solution that actually works. Um, and, you know, I think we need to do that more. That's one reason why we also bring in artists and people from, from different perspectives into our organization, because there's way more ways to reach people than, you know, what we typically can do as scientists. Yeah. Um, what's the best airport you've experienced? The, the what? Sorry. you. Cut. What's the best airport you've experienced? Airport. Wow. Um, I definitely say an international one. Um, I got the chance to go to South Korea and Thailand. Mm -hmm. So I think the one in Seoul was probably the most interesting one I went to and primarily being because they had these little robots going all over the place and like directing you to like, there's no people it's just robots. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like a stewardess or if you had to ask a question and it had all the languages. So they had a lot more like technically advanced um, experiences than I've seen in the States. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. What about you? I'll reverse that. Oh, um, <laughs> I would say, Hmm. I haven't, I'm not as traveled. I feel like as other people, um, let's see. I mean, I like O'Hare. Yeah. Or I, well, I went to, so I recently went to New York and uh, LaGuardia is completely different than what I've experienced before. So I was visiting my friend in Brooklyn and, and I was like, oh, I went to the new Apple store. He's like, oh yeah, here in Brooklyn. I'm like, no, LaGuardia. <laughs> that place is like, it's like a Apple store and everything is so nice and clean and like design and, and minimal. Uh, it's quite beautiful. I was really impressed with LaGuardia. Um, <laughs> and I, I think airports leave an impression on people that travel through. Um, I'm trying to also be more aware of the airports I travel through. So when I went to Spain, it wasn't, I, I just like wasn't as aware of everything. Uh, I went through Madrid. Uh, Hong Kong was pretty major. That airport was pretty impressive, I feel like. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like LaGuardia is like right now the most impressive that I've seen. I would not have said that a month ago or like two months ago. When, when did I go? But like the what they're doing is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I And I know, I guess in the States, have you ever been to Denver? I have. I've flown have that, that from there once. Whole, uh, um conspiracy thing with their, they even embrace it in the air, airport. <laughs> I, if I'm you not, haven't looked it up, look it up. <laughs> so it's like, uh, like it's haunted or there was another, it's something like old... that, that they have like chambers underneath it and it's a weird alignment. It's just interesting. It's like with the whole new world order stuff and they actually have art that you can see in the airport that is of it. There's actually a documentary on it. So go ahead and watch it. And then next time you're, I go snowboarding in Colorado often. So every time I go, I'm like, that's funny. They're just embracing the, yeah. the stigma. It's good marketing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> It is. Uh, I'll, I'll be aware of LaGuardia next time I go. <laughs> it, it's probably you have to go through the nothing. It's the main terminal that they've completed. It was a disaster yeah. and a dump before this. It was like <laughs> terrible. But um, what's something that excites you for the next two years? For the next two years, I'd say definitely, um, you know, moving forward with my company. It's it's been a really rewarding um, process and I hope to grow my team and hopefully be able to hire more people soon, um, but also expand into new avenues um, like ocean energy and even maybe back to marine medicine eventually um, as we keep growing. So definitely excited to continue to grow. Yeah, it's uh, 
That is exciting. Well, thank you for taking the time to uh, meet with us today and, and share more about the ocean and the work that you're doing. It's pretty cool. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been, been fun. <laughs> thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow her on Instagram at ShelbyThomas21. You can also follow this podcast at Rich Convos and on Twitter at Rich Convos Pod. Keep in mind yours and our relationship to planet Earth and how we can always work to understand more and grow stronger and caring.